Just a quick heads up, a little warning going into before this episode begins. There may be a little bit of salty language, um, including, I think, one F-bomb. So if you have young children or if you have a sensitive ear of your own or you don't want to have to explain what certain words mean, like the F-bomb, because you just don't have the time and you're not ready to have that conversation yet. You may want to skip this episode, or you may want to listen to it in advance before you let young and, pre- young and or impressionable people listen to the episode. Just a fair warning, a little bit of salty language early on in this episode and a couple of spots throughout. Enjoy the show. Greetings! Welcome to I Have So Many Questions, a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane interrogatories. I am your esteemed host, Brian Watson. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcast at. It helps bring in new listeners as I work toward establishing my cult of personality, which is the sole purpose of this entire endeavor. Here's how you can get in touch with the show. The Twitter handle is at I Have So Many Pod. Or just look up I Have So Many Questions podcast on the search function of your Twitter app. Email address is I Have Questions podcast at gmail.com. Facebook.com forward slash I Have So Many Questions podcast. At some point, I really need to start trying to leverage or more to the point, actually use the Facebook page besides a, uh, a repository for uh, new episode postings. The show is hosted on Anchor.fm and through their mobile app. Streaming through Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, PocketCast, Breaker, Radio Public, and of course, iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Did I mention previously or currently that you can also leave voice messages if you listen to the show through Anchor's website or through their mobile app? That's right. If you go to the I Have So Many Questions podcast web page on Anchor.fm, You can leave me a song, a limerick, a screed, a tirade, a rant, whatever form of audio feedback. Unfortunately, it can't be audio visual. It can only be audio. Whatever audio feedback you want to give me. If you want me to hear your rendition of Straight Outta Compton, where you perform all of the parts in the song, how you go from the kind of the high pitchiness of easy e to the base of ice cube if you can pull it off pull it off but if you want me to hear your rendition of straight out of compton the voice message feature on anchor's website is the way to go or if you want to do something a little more professional send it to me in an email or post it slide into my dm send me a dm through twitter however you want to get that your rendition of straight out of compton out to the masses And don't think I won't play it on this show. By all means, do so. So how's your quarantine? Got any good pandemic limericks? Memes? Dirty jokes? I can only imagine that there's a... If you were to go to Pornhub, there's probably pandemic porn. I posted on Twitter a little bit ago. Um... Do strippers wear masks while they're at work? It's a fair question. You think the one 
business that would probably be trying to get as much hand sanitizer. Oh, they're probably making their own. They've probably got their own recipe. You figure if there's one business that's doing its doing its damnest to um damnest damnedest to uh, to sanitize everything for once, um, so that their doors can stay open and their girls can keep coming into work. Because if the girls get sick, business ain't happening. It's a strip club. It's got to be a strip club. They're using. They're getting the Lysol and the disinfecting wipes, and they've got their own homemade batch of of hand sanitizer or probably all purpose, all body sanitizer. They're probably doing everything humanly possible. They they're probably like sacrificing goats in the back to appease a play, a pagan god, so that their strippers, their employees, don't get the COVID, so they can stay open. Because again. No strippers, no strip club. Nobody goes to a strip club for the booze. Well, there probably are people that go for the strip club for the booze. But it's probably like a, it'd be like a combo quasi-fusion of uh, craft beer and strip club. Then people probably go for the, for the booze. But generally, people don't go to the strip club for the alcohol. Speaking of strip clubs, let's talk about the subject for this episode. There is no impetus for, no form of inspiration for this particular topic. It popped into my head. And I'm like, you know what? That's a good idea. Especially for people that are my age or older. Not that there are many of you. Probably not that there are many of you that listen to this show. I do a lot of channel surfing. Not that, I do a lot of channel surfing, but I do a lot of channel surfing on different apps. I have a PlayStation 4. There's lots of streaming apps on there. I surf as if I had cable. I channel surf on those apps. I channel surf Netflix, Amazon, Pluto TV, YouTube TV, which is nice. Tubi, I'm sure I'm forgetting one. But I do a lot of channel surfing. I cannot make decisions at all. On Pluto TV, they've got all kinds of MTV reality channels. And I'm like, you know what? I remember when MTV actually stood for music television. That's how old I am. So I thought with this episode, do a little blast to the past and talk about vintage MTV. Or when MTV was probably close to its zenith or its apex. This would be the pre-Carson Daly MTV because let's face it, Carson Daly kills everything not as much as ryan seacrest kills everything but if you got carson daly doing your thing your thing is going to die it is it is immediately loses all of its cool not as badly as if ryan seacrest was involved i mean good lord does anybody think that american idol is cool or has ever been cool if you haven't thought that it was cool then that's probably because you have a strong aversion to Ryan Seacrest. That show that he does with Kelly Ripa, oh God, it's unwatchable. And it's unwatchable because of Ryan Seacrest. Ryan Seacrest has ruined Kelly Ripa. Not that Kelly Ripa had a lot going for her, but she was way cooler when she was with Regis. And that's a guy who was like three times Ryan Seacrest's age, okay? Regis is infinitely cooler than Ryan Seacrest. And Regis is probably knocking on heaven's door right now. 
but if you got Carson Daly on your thing, your thing's gonna die. So I thought I would go back to vintage MTV and kind of wax nostalgic, reminisce about that period of time when MTV was at its zenith, when it was the definer of popular culture for a good decade. Yeah, I'm gonna say from about 1983 to about 1993 was when MTV was at its zenith. Now, maybe a little bit longer. Probably right up to the point where Kurt Cobain died the end of the grunge era and then after that it kind of just started going downhill because right about the end of the grunge era is when you had the boy bands start to come up and then once the boy bands hit on MTV everything went to shit so about 83 to 93 or probably a little bit further than that but to me that's peak MTV as I've probably as I've mentioned on previous episode in a previous episode, I was like one of the few people that I knew when I was a kid that had cable. Back then, but the only channel that we watched that I can remember was MTV. If you had friends come over, you watched MTV. I can remember my parents, my dad, my mom and dad had this really as every 70s and 80s parent did of a certain age. They had a bitchin' stereo system. My dad had figured out how to wire a stereo system to multiple speakers throughout the house. And these weren't little speakers like the little speakers that we use nowadays. Oh, no, 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 no. These were cabinet speakers, okay? These were the kind of speakers that if they fell on you, they would kill you. And he had them wired throughout the house. There was like four of them. There was like one, there was like a set on each floor of the house. And it always hooked up to a stereo system. Well, the old man had figured out, and I don't know how he did it. He figured out how to connect the stereo to the TV. 1985 was Live Aid, was 1985, which was on a Saturday. We broadcasted that shit live on through MTV, through my dad's stereo system. So the whole day is nothing but Live Aid being played through the, throughout the house. That's how cool we were, which was nice because it kind of interrupted my mom from playing Corey Hart. That's another story entirely. But MTV was the cool thing. It was the coolest thing for my entire childhood, through my adolescence, into my teens, and into early college. It was MTV. I can remember my mom and my sister and I watching the premiere of the Michael Jackson Thriller video in 83, I believe. It was a big deal. It was like a movie premiere. MTV hyped the shit out of that. And this was peak Michael Jackson, okay? The Thriller video kind of came late in the release period of Thriller. There was like four or five songs that had already come out. Two of them had videos. Beat It and Billie Jean were the ones I remember. But it was um, PYT, Wanna Be Starting Something, Beat It, Billie Jean. I think those had already come out. Thriller was a kind of a lag. The song Thriller was kind of a lag. And there was a reason for that. They made a mini movie out of it. It was a 15-minute long video. And MTV hyped the shit out of the premiere of that video. This was peak Michael Jackson. This is Thriller Michael Jackson. This is when Michael Jackson was cool. 
And then, once he did bad, everything went to shit. Interesting little side note, and I'm sure a lot of people know this of a certain vintage. The, the bad video, or the video for bad, the one where Michael Jackson grabs his crotch more times than you could count. Directed by Martin Scorsese. And I think it was, I think Scorsese did that video right before he did The Last Temptation of Christ. And then, of course, he had to have the palate cleanser of a couple years later after that, Goodfellas. But the bad video directed by Scorsese. With a young Wesley Snipes in a supporting role. You, ever, you wonder how long after that did Wesley Snipes go, God, I was in the bad video. Oh, why? Why was I in the bad video? This was peak Michael Jackson, 1983. The thriller video premieres. I think it was on a Friday night. Might have been around Halloween. Um, because for those, for, if you may not know, the thriller video directed by John Landis, film director John Landis, who had just done Amer An American Werewolf in London. Before that did The Blues Brothers, and before that did Animal House. John Landis directs this 15-minute music video for Michael Jackson. Rick Baker, um, makeup artist Rick Baker, does all of the makeup for the video, like it's a horror movie. It's 15 minutes long. There's a horror movie wedged with thriller, with that book ends, the thriller song itself. And this is an extended version or a different version of thriller. They've moved, they've moved the arrangement around to where the... Uh, the chorus is at the end with this big dance number. Looks expensive. Looks shot like a film, looks like a film. It's basically a 15-minute film. This is peak Michael Jackson, and I remember my sister and my mom and I staying up on a Friday night until 9 or 10 or something like that, and I watched the video. And it was the most amazing thing we'd ever seen up to that point. And it's genuinely scary in parts. You know, you've got that beginning where... Michael Jackson turns into the werewolf and the werewolf makeup is pretty freaking cool and then you've got him chasing the girl and then he's you've got the close-up of the camera zooming in on him and the makeup as it's closed as he's closing in on the girl and everything and you know when you're eight years old or in my sister's case five it's scary but it was totally awesome and that was the thriller video the premiere of the thriller video kind of established MTV at that point but then there was USA for Africa. They were a big, um, they played that video to death. Not a great song, but everybody's in it. Uh, then of course, Live Aid in 85. And they broadcast the whole thing from beginning to end. They do the same thing with the, um, the Woodstock revivals uh, years later. They do the same thing, but the big thing was Live Aid. MTV just kind of, blew up no mtv no madonna i'll just flat out say it okay music videos did more for madonna than probably any artist ever you probably don't get you too probably doesn't become as big as they are michael jackson obviously hair bands rap music hip-hop you don't get that you probably you know there's so many genres of music in that period of time and so many artists that probably would not have been as big as they were, were it not for the music video and were it not for MTV. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like similar to, um, uh, the difference between football players and basketball players. 
a football player can walk around, a famous football player can walk around, and a lot of people won't know who he is because he's always got the damn helmet on. An NBA basketball player is much more well-known because it's just them in a tank top and shorts, and you see their faces all the time, and you see they're animated and all this kind of stuff. You see, you get an idea of who they are more than you do a football player. That's kind of similar to what you had with the music video. In the beginning, music videos were just the artist or the band or whatever would basically be pretending to perform unless the music video was an actual live concert performance. And then they got more elaborate. They got more sophisticated. Then they started telling stories and that type of thing. Started having themes. And then you started uh, really started to get accomplished and established music video directors that would go, they'd go on to be... um, to be going to become film directors or accomplished film directors and they cut their teeth on music videos but there's whole genres of music whole you know artists who wouldn't have been probably wouldn't have been as big as they were as they became were it not for MTV i mean MTV was just huge and then in the late 80s um you start to see when the genres really start to form you see yo MTV raps First with Fab Five Freddy on the, the Saturday shows. Um, I think they used to be either Saturday mornings. I think they started out on Saturday mornings originally, and then they moved to Saturday nights or vice versa. They might have been they started on Saturday nights, and then they moved to Saturday mornings. Fab Five Freddy, an hour, once a week. It was scheduled viewing. It was required viewing. You know, If you loved hip-hop, you watched UMTV raps. Then it became so big that you got the Daily Show the daily Yo MTV rap show, which was on, on the afternoons, I think of three or f- four o'clock, I think. I think it was like four or five o'clock every day with Dr. Dre and Ed Lover. Headbangers Ball. Uh, <laughs> Headbangers Ball, which I believe, if my memory serves originally, was hosted by Adam Curry. It was not a headbanger in any way, shape, or form. Adam Curry arguably had the best hair on a best head of hair on a man ever. During that period of time, Google him, YouTube him. Adam Curry's hair in the late 80s was just amazing. Adam Curry was very much a hairband guy, not exactly a host for a show called The Headbangers Ball. He's not exactly, he in no way, shape, or form did you get any impression that he's playing Metallica's Masters of Puppets on repeat. You just don't get that impression with him. He had Farrah Fawcett type of hair. It was like that. But he was the original host of the Handbangers Ball, which was also on Saturday nights really late. And then Ricky Rackman took over um, a few years later. And really kind of, he kind of, he really elevated the show at that point. He, he brought a, uh, uh, he brought a level of authenticity to the show at that point. Um, Adam Curry more mostly had hairbands on his show. Um, 120 minutes alternative. I can't remember the guy who hosted that show. He was tall, he was skinny, and he had dark hair. I can't remember his name. He hosted that show for years. 120 minutes, which I think was on Sunday nights, and it played a lot of alternative, modern uh, rock, alternative rock, not grunge, but like um, The Cure, New Order. Sonic Youth, crap, Depeche Mode, 
progressive rock, that type of thing. And then, you know, there, and then there was the other, they had a dance show. They had like club MTV, uh, downtown Julie Brown, who was exceptionally obnoxious, especially with that catchphrase. Oh my God. That catchphrase was so horrible. I don't even want to repeat it. Look it up. Oh, it's just, it was horrendous. And it was, and it was a, it was a club thing and, you know, it was a club show and it was in a very compact studio. It was like, okay, actually it's kind of like, it's kind of like what white nor it's like what white Scandinavians as if there's other colored Scandinavians, but, um, it's as if Scandinavians, what a Scandinavians imagined soul train would be like. That's what club MTV was drunk Scandinavians. If that's what drunk Scandinavians thought soul train was like, you got club MTV. But MDV defined a, it was the pop culture zenith for, certainly for the 80s and for most of the 90s. And it was, it's, I swear, it's the only cable channel besides HBO that I ever remember us having because it was the only cable channel I watched. Maybe the Turner, maybe the TBS and, well, no, TBS because they showed uh, NWA wrestling. Um, USA Network because they showed Kung Fu Theater on Sunday mornings. But MTV was what you watched. Friends came over, you watched MTV. Even if you weren't watching it, it was on unless you were playing Nintendo. And then you were kind of miffed that you couldn't play Nintendo and watch MTV at the same time because they were on the same television. That's what you did unless you rented VHS tapes from the local video store. It was MTV all the time. You know, you started to have Metallica in the late 80s. It was Guns N' Roses. Oh my God, Guns N' Roses. Every girl I knew in middle school and in high school loved Guns N' Roses in ways that they probably never loved an actual human being that they spent time with, that they interacted with, that they mated with. You look at that band and you go, really? These guys? The lead singer looks like he invented heroin chic or he's on meth. The lead guitarist looks like he ran over a dog and then put it on his head. And then the rest of the band was just scuzzy as scuzzy, but somehow sex appeal. I guess when you compare it to poison, Europe. No, I'm not going to, no, not Motley Crue. I'm not going to disparage Motley Crue. Crew, the crew was cool. Um, but any hair band, really. Kiss without the makeup. Compared to the hair bands, Guns N' Roses looked kind of metal, I guess. But, you know, somehow, sex appeal. MTV had a game show. Remote Control. What is probably the most memorable thing about Remote Control was who that show introduced to the world. First, it introduced Colin Quinn to the world. Colin Quinn was a sidekick. Uh, the premise of Remote Control was the game show host... The, supposedly the, the game is being played in the basement of the host, Ken Ober, who unfortunately is no longer with us. He died, I want to say 10, 15 years ago, a long time ago. Anyway, Ken Ober was the host. Supposedly the show was in his basement. He lived with his parents. He was a TV junkie. 
And you had these three contestants, usually college kids, because you could tell they were in college because they wore college sweatshirts. It was like college. It was like the, the college tournament in Jeopardy. Anyway, Ken Oberhout was the host. He had a, a sidekick played by Colin Quinn, not played by Colin Quinn, but it was Colin Quinn. And Colin Quinn was like, uh, would make snarky remarks or that type of thing. And he just kind of sat there and tried to act cool. And then there was always a, a female co-host, not really a co-host, but she was kind of eye candy, arm candy on Colin Quinn. They went through like half a dozen of, of those female hosts. The one I remember the most was Kari Wurr. And let me spell that for you in case you need to Google her. K-A-R-I-W-U-H-R-E-R. Kari Wurr. She became a staple because of remote control. She became a staple on direct-to-video movies and a staple on uh, late-night Cinemax. Not Skinemax, although she did do a little bit of that, but Cinemax, okay? Anything direct-to-video in the 90s probably had Kari Warner in it, whether it be thriller, erotic thriller, horror movie, action movie. She was, uh, she could do it all. Remote control introduced the world to Colin Quinn. A few years later, Colin Quinn would uh, end up on Saturday Night Live, obviously, and he'd be there forever. It also introduced comedians. Um, probably most infamously, it was Adam Sandler. This is pre-SNL Adam Sandler. Uh, probably his gig on remote control gave him a little bit of a highlight reel for his eventual audition for SNL. Sandler would be what they had. They do these little, depending on the category that of the game, they'd have Sandler come out in these various different characters, something you'd see him do on Saturday Night Live years later. He'd come out of these as these different characters. One of them was like he was the cuz he was like Colin Quinn's cousin and they hated each other or something like that. Another one was he called himself Dishstud Boy and he'd just be really goofy, bordering on obnoxious. You know, typical Sandler. He was like an all purpose uh, comic relief. And then the other one, most famously, was uh, Dennis Leary. And for like a year or two, Dennis Leary was like a staple on MTV. He was everywhere. He did a whole bunch of commercials for MTV. The one that, you know, the one that I remember the most, and usually they were like mini rants. He'd, he'd go on like a 10 to 20 second rant about something. Um, he just, Dennis Leary's comedic style was that he'd kind of, is like a, a, a rock rolling downhill type of thing. And he'd just build momentum. A rant on top of a rant on top of a rant, and he'd just keep going. Kind of a rage-fueled rant type of thing. And uh, one commercial that I remember he did was he fixated on Cindy Crawford. This would be supermodel Cindy Crawford, who at the time was also was an even bigger staple on MTV than... Uh, or she was more ubiquitous on MTV than Dennis Leary had been. This is around the time that Cindy Crawford was married briefly to Richard Gere. And uh, Leary did a, uh, did a commercial where he uh, demonstrated his obsession with Cindy Crawford, which was understandable at the time. He, he did it in the form of a direct challenge to Richard Gere involving Eskimo cream pies and changing MTV's name from MTV to CTV, House of Style 24-7, that type of thing. It's, if you get a chance, look up Dennis Leary, Cindy Crawford, MTV on YouTube. It's got to be there. It's pretty funny for like a 30-second ad. But if not for MTV, the world, you know, the world wouldn't have not have been introduced to 
as much to Cindy Crawford or supermodels in general. I mean, House of Style did more for supermodels and MTV did more for supermodels than just about any anything else on the planet, more so than the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Because truth be told, that was kind of a vicious circle type of thing. The swimsuit issue fed into House of Style and MTV, and then MTV and House of Style fed into the swimsuit issue. Whole lot of hairspray, not a lot of clothing. And truth be told, nobody watched House of Style for the segments. You watched House of Style for the supermodels, if you're a dude, and for Cindy Crawford, if you're a dude. And I have no idea what women watched House of Style for. I really don't. This was, this was pre-internet. So even if you saw anything on there that you liked, having the ability to track it down and acquire it was probably impossible. And then if you were able, maybe by luck, to be able to find it, hunt it down and track it down, you probably couldn't afford it. No MTV, no Cindy Crawford. She'd have still done, she's still been a model and still done modeling or anything, but do you really think she would have done Pepsi commercials and done that god-awful movie with Billy Baldwin? Do you think she'd have married Richard Gere? Well, she might have married Richard Gere. Would she have been as big? No, she wouldn't have been. So MTV was everywhere. It did everything. It gave us grunge in the early, early to mid-90s. Grunge wouldn't have been, wouldn't have happened without MTV. It just wouldn't have. Hip-hop wouldn't have been as big as it was without MTV. You had Yo! MTV raps on MTV years before you had BET, Black Entertainment Television, having their own rap show. Now, my memory serves it was Rap City, which was also a great show on every day. And it was usually on, I believe it was on before the daily version of Yo! MTV raps. So you could watch like two or three hours of hip-hop every day in the afternoon. It was great. But, you know, the MTV Video Music Awards were a big deal for a long time. They were about as big as the Grammys or the Oscars or anything like that. The Emmys, they were big. It was, that was a thing, you, you actually watched it. You wanted to see when, but you also, you know, you wanted to see the performances and that type of thing. Um, probably the most memorable performance at the Video Music Awards ever was Madonna doing Like a Virgin. I remember one for like a year, MTV resurrected the monkeys. They had like this year long monkey renaissance or something where they had all the where they got three out of the four members and then somehow they got Mike Nesbitt, Mike Nesbitt or Mike Nesmith to appear after he had tossed away the monkeys decades before. But they did, they like resurrected the monkeys for like a year. This would be the fictitious band, The Monkees, M-O-N-K-E-E-S, that had the Beatles-like show in the 70s, or the late 60s. The, they were a bunch of mop toppers. It was a comedy. And MTV would show, like, re, would show reruns. They gave us Beavis and Butthead. Later, we'd get Jackass, which was kind of at the peak of... Well, not really the peak of, but it was toward the peak of... The genre that MTV probably did more for, did more to establish than probably any other channel. And that's reality television. Before MTV, the only, prob the only show that I can think of that you would consider reality TV 
was Cops on Fox. I think Cops started in 87 or 88, maybe 89. Late 80s, Cops came on the air and it was on for decades. The show that really established reality television to my dismay, because as I've mentioned numerous times, there should be a constitutional amendment banning reality television. It should be illegal, all right? Legalize drugs, put a prohibition on reality television, okay? It's awful, all of it. Every last bit of it is awful. I'd be happy just getting rid of TLC. Constitutional amendment that, you know, inadvertently or not inadvertently, but deliberately gets helps get rid of TLC. I am a happy guy. Reality television probably doesn't happen without MTV uh, and the real world, which I think was in 1991. I believe it was 91. And it was an experiment. The show was an experiment at the time. This is when MTV is at the peak of its powers. It's, it is a music video destination. It is a pop culture destination. And they decide to diversify their programming um, away from music. And the real world was an experiment. And the premise, and they, and they, the premise, and they say it in the introduction of each show, is was you take a group of strangers, you put them in a, you put them in the same place, living together for a period of time with cameras and watch what happens. The original, the first season of The Real World took place in New York and they and the cast was pretty diverse. Ish. You had um, a male model. You had an African-American male journalist who would, I think he went on to, he did some stuff for MTV News after that, but I think he, he really, um, Landed at Rolling Stone for a while. I think he didn't went on to produce um, some documentaries as well. But he had an African American journalist or wannabe journalist, would be journalist. Um, you had an African American female rapper. You had a musician, a long haired musician, kind of a not really not hair band, but not gr- kind of a pre grunge type of musician. You had a, a girl from the country, another girl who really didn't, she didn't really fit a demographic or a niche. And then you had a, um, another man who was, uh, who was gay, which in 1991, that was a big deal to have a gay man as a character, not a character, but as a cast member on a television show. And they were all being themselves. I mean, there, this, it was a cast, but it wasn't, they weren't playing characters that would come later in subsequent versions of the real world. They would be themselves. And, and to have one of, to have a member of the cast be a gay man in 1991, kind of a big deal. And the cameras followed him around and there was, and it was, especially when you take a look at subsequent seasons that was as authentic. And when you, especially when you compare it to other reality television shows, cause they're all setups. Okay. It's not, none of it is real. That show though was about as close to reality as you could get for the premise. There were disagreements. There were arguments. There were philosophical differences. 
there was sexual tension. There was, there were a couple of setups that were, um, that were really kind of ham handed, but by and large, it was, it was a viewing experience. It was, it was required viewing. If you were a teenager, uh, you watched the real world, especially that first season, you really watched it. And it was like nothing you'd ever seen before. A few years later, it was all you'd see, but it was such, it was such a, such a novel and interesting concept and it worked. And then in subsequent seasons, it all went to shit. It became so successful that it eventually supplanted everything that MTV did. And it became MTV. Um, the real world led to road rules, which led to other things, which led to blah, 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 and led to teen moms. 16 and pregnant and teen moms, because that's all MTV is now. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Real world led to world rules, which led to blah, 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 which led to the hills, which led to 16 and pregnant and teen mom and teen moms and all that kind of stuff to where that's all MTV is now. It's reality television. If they do videos, it's like from three o'clock in the morning to six o'clock in the morning. If you're lucky, how they still do the VMAs is amazing because that's, that's chutzpah is what that is. Okay, we're going to do the Video Music Awards on a channel that doesn't show videos at all. Chutzpah. But the real world at the time in 1991 was just, I almost want to say it was revolutionary. It was just that, it was just that different. Then you get a second season in Los Angeles, which was not as interesting. The cast certainly wasn't as likable. At that point, you you get a pretty good indicators of which direction this show is going to go in in the years to come, because uh, the experiment is over. It's now all about television and it's all about ratings. We, the first season was the experiment. We tried it; it worked. So now on to contrivance and drama and that type of thing. The third season was in San Francisco. The third season's memorable for a variety of different reasons. The three things that I remember about that third season in San Francisco was one of the cast members would go on to to marry another real world cast member from a future season. And then they would, that future cast member would run for Congress. That guy was Sean Duffy, Republican congressman from Wisconsin who stepped down. He's a big Trumper. So is his wife. I think her name was Rachel. Rachel Campos Duffy, I think is her name. Anyway, she was on that third season of Real World, 1993. She would go on to marry Sean Duffy, and they would go on to become Trumpers and Staples on Fox News and that type of thing. Uh, the that was the the probably the, that's probably the most long term memorable thing that people remember about the Real World from that season. The other thing that that season did was that it it dealt with AIDS. One of the cast members, Pedro, whose last name I cannot remember, he had AIDS and he was a cast member with AIDS. He unfortunately, um, I think he died within three to five years of that season. I think he, he didn't live long. He only lived a few more years after that. Bill Clinton delivered a eulogy uh, for him 
at his, I think Clinton attended the funeral or delivered a video eulogy or something like that. Clinton delivered a eulogy for Pedro when he died. And that third season of the real world dealt with, I don't think it did. I'm not sure how good of a job they did in dealing with it because the gravity of it's very hard, if not impossible to balance the gravity of AIDS and living with AIDS. And what, what the season, what that season did really did was it tried to show what it was like to live with AIDS. AIDS very much was still a, it was still very much a terminal illness at the time. There were treatments for it, but they were in their, they were in their early stages of the, the, the treat. There wasn't a lot of treat, available treatment options. If those treatments were successful, they'd prolong your life, but not for, not for as long as you would hope. But what that season did was you had a cast member who had AIDS, who had been living with AIDS for several years. He was an activist. He was, he was a homosexual and he was in a relationship. And it did, that season tried to demonstrate what day-to-day living was for a man with AIDS. The problem is that I'm not so sure that they did a good, they, I think they could have done a better job of that because at the same time that they're trying to do this very good thing, they're also trying to ramp up the drama as to an even higher degree than they had in the previous season and certainly to a much higher degree than what you saw in the first season. I don't think those two objectives are compatible. I don't think especially in the early 90s, I don't think you can do I don't think you can do contrived drama while also trying to do something or demonstrate something about AIDS. I don't think you could do that. And I don't think it worked. Now, when you're 17, 18 years old, you're watching the drama because that's what you're tuning in for is the contrived drama. But you're also, and unfortunately, you've got Pedro getting sucked into that contrived drama. And you kind of get the impression that he doesn't want to get sucked into the contrived drama. It's kind of like he's, He's going along with it, but he doesn't want to. It seems undignified, and it is. It's kind of undignified. And they don't do a good job of balancing that. And I think towards the latter, I think once they realized, I think at a certain point during that season, they realized, okay, we've taken this contrived drama thing way too far with this, with this con, within, this, within this context. So we're going to walk it back a little bit. They kicked another cast member out or he quit one or the other. And he was the, he was the source of the contrived drama. Okay. He was, he was clearly brought in to be an instigator and in that environment and with everything else that's going on with that cast and with them trying to have a, trying to do something, have a serious take on living with AIDS. Those two things just don't, didn't work. And I think in the second half of the, or the latter part of that season, I think they realized that and, um, and they, there was still contrived drama about kicking the cast member out, but I think they realized that. I think they could have done a better job of 
trying to accomplish that goal. It was still a big deal at the time. I mean, it's the early 90s. I mean, a lot of this stuff has to be taken in the context in which, in which the time period that it occurred. Um, 91, you have a, a you have a, a a single homosexual man in his uh, the Norman. I think he was in his 30s. He looked like he was in his 30s, early 30s, and he's a main he's a cast member, a main cast member on this show. That's kind of a big deal for 1991. You have a uh, you know another another man living with AIDS in San Francisco in 1993 when AIDS is a still at that point a very scary thing to the uninitiated to the unfamiliar to the people unfamiliar with it and it on this show you see a man living with it coping with it um trying to still live his life have a relationship be an activist pursue the goals that he wants to pursue while at the same time living with this disease. You know, that was a big thing for 1993. This is immediately after 12 years of Republican rule, 12, after 12 years of moral majority, Christian coalition type of political agitprop. And to have, even in a circumstance, and to have that there, even in a contrived circumstance like the real world, which wasn't scripted. Well, okay. It wasn't a scripted show. It wasn't like it had writers and directors. Um, okay. This is the plot for this week's show. You know, this is the story we're going to tell. It wasn't like that at the time with no concept of what reality television is or would become that seemed awfully close to real life. And to have that reflected in a show Week after week, not just a one-time thing. It wasn't like a 30-minute documentary or a one-hour documentary where it's a one and done. It was every week. You watched this cast together, interacting together and doing their own thing week after week after week. And to see that in that time period and just to watch a man trying to live his life, knowing what he knows about the condition, the disease that he has, especially in that time period. You know, that's, that was a big thing. And then unfortunately MTV got, it, 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 it did what every successful thing does. It started to chase the brass ring as if that was the only brass ring and everything else got tossed away to where the only things that it started to make were reality TV shows. And then it was, okay, we're going to replace a lot of our programming with reruns of reality TV shows. And we're just going to keep playing the same stuff over and over and over again, because people watch that more than they watched anything else that we were doing that was new or original or uh, creative. And they stopped watching music videos to whereas now MTV doesn't stand for anything just as TLC doesn't stand for anything anymore. Long, long time ago, kids, TLC stand stood for the learning channel. And then they realized nobody watches anything on the Learning Channel. So they started doing reality TV shows involving little people, religious fundamentalists, exceptionally overweight people, um, and hoarders, and whatever else they could find. And at a certain point, they just said, you know what, we're not the Learning Channel anymore. We're just TLC. 
which in normal vernacular, TLC stands for tender loving care. And if you watch anything on that show, that is the exact opposite of tender loving care. 90 day fiance, folks. I give you that. 90 day fiance. Give me a fucking break. But MTV became, they just became obsessed with reality television because that's what brought in ratings, which brought in money. I think I have waxed nostalgic long enough about the glory days of MTV. What do you think? And I know it may be hard to have an opinion about that type of thing unless you're like my age or older to where you can remember late 80s, early 90s MTV. Because otherwise, I'm just speaking German to you. Although I would strongly suggest Google. Oh, I'm sure there's a ton of stuff on YouTube about from, from that time period. If you're really curious and not old enough to remember that time period. At the very least, Google Adam Curry's hair on MTV. It's impressive. It's remarkable. It doesn't look real. I remember when he got his hair cut a few years later, and I think it was after he left MTV, or it was either right at the tail end of, M- of his stint at MTV or after he left and he got his hair cut. I was like, oh my God, what did you do? It was like he committed a hate crime. It was like, how could you do that to your hair? What's wrong with you, man? But tell me what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms, concerns about this episode or any prior episode. Go back and listen to episode 24, my interview with Moxie from Your Brain on Facts. Check out her show. Um, She's put out a couple of episodes since our episode. Check out her show. Check out my interview with her. And be prepared because there's a lot of squirrels involved in that episode. You know, we're talking and then squirrel and then squirrel and then squirrel but it's totally worth it absolutely totally worth it great and a great episode a great interview if you have questions criticisms or concerns about that interview if you have comments questions criticisms or concerns about this episode prior episodes anything at all life if you want to tell me about your quarantine tell me about your quarantine because I don't know about you but I ain't doing a damn thing I haven't been doing a damn thing I've been quarantined for 60 days and I should have a lot more to show for it than I do. You know, if you're accomplishing things, unlike I, let me know. If you're not accomplishing things, like I, let me know. The Twitter handle is at I have so many pod or look up I have so many questions in the search function of your Twitter app. The email address is I have questions podcast at gmail.com. As I've mentioned, if you go to the 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 show page on anchor.fm, you can leave me a voice message. I may play it on a future episode. I may not. It depends. I'm very moody that way. Facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts at. Super duper important. Visibility is key because I'm cheap and I don't have to pay people for their adulation. This has been I Have So Many Questions. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you for your time and for your patronage. Good night, Cleveland.